On September 17, 1964, in Memphis, Tennessee, Republican presidential candidate Barry Goldwater wound up his first extended tour of the South. It took him to 13 major southern cities in eight states, including Greenville, South Carolina, Shreveport, Louisiana, and New Orleans, Louisiana. CBS announced that it was returning Walter Cronkite to the lead anchor position for its election night coverage. Cronkite was pulled out of the anchor chair for the Democratic National Convention after poor ratings during the Republican Convention. Mayor J. Dorm Bramman of Seattle admitted that his city's Citizens Committee for Major League Baseball was negotiating with the Cleveland Indians to transfer the franchise from Cleveland to Seattle. And in Kansas City, Missouri, the Beatles played a concert before a crowd of 20,207 fans at Municipal Stadium. Municipal Stadium is one of the ballparks Lawrence Ritter wrote about in his 1992 book, Lost Ballparks. Where have you gone, Lost Ballparks? Part 2. Welcome to Where Have You Gone? People, places, and things that are gone but not forgotten, forgotten but not gone, and the people and places saving these stories for your enjoyment and benefit today. I'm Morris Eckhaus. In our last episode, I told you about Lost Ballparks, the 1992 book by Larry Ritter, and we began a virtual journey to the 22 ballpark sites that Ritter wrote about. We began in Cleveland and got as far as Los Angeles before we ran out of gas, so to speak. In this episode, we'll pick up the journey to the remaining sites, heading back east with our first stop in Kansas City, where we left off in Los Angeles at Wrigley Field, or the Wrigley Field site, is about 15 miles east of the Santa Monica Pier, near the original western terminus of Route 66. Route 66 doesn't go to Kansas City, although it does go to St. Louis. You might take 66 from Los Angeles to Joplin, Missouri, and then go north on Interstate 49 up into Kansas City. However you get there, Kansas City is where I'll pick up our Ritter's Lost Ballparks virtual road trip in a moment. As we make our virtual way back east, it's 1,632 miles to Kansas City and the site of Kansas City's Municipal Stadium. During its lifetime from 1923 to 1976, it was called Muehlbach Stadium, Rupert Stadium, Blues Stadium, and Municipal Stadium. It was a single-deck ballpark until the Philadelphia Athletics received permission to move to Kansas City in 1955. Before the season, a second deck was added to the ballpark and seating capacity almost doubled to over 30,000. The Athletics brought Major League Baseball to Kansas City, but the Kansas City Athletics never had a winning season in 13 years, 1955 to 1967, finished last five times, 
never finished closer than 19 games to first place, and were generally considered a big league farm club for the New York Yankees until Charles O. Finley bought the team in December 1960. Finley planted the seeds for a championship club and then moved it to Oakland. The move created enough political pushback that Kansas City was awarded an American League expansion franchise, and when the Kansas City Royals came into existence, they played four seasons at Municipal Stadium before moving into a new park, now called Kauffman Stadium, part of the Harry S. Truman Sports Complex on the edge of Kansas City and just off Interstate 70. The Municipal Stadium site is a short walk, north on Brooklyn Avenue and west on East 18th Street, to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. If you're a baseball fan, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum must be on your short list of places to visit if you haven't done so already. It's one of the outstanding baseball museums, and it's in the same building with the Kansas City Jazz Museum. And it isn't happenstance that the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is in the 18th and Vine neighborhood of Kansas City. The Negro Leagues were formed on February 13, 1920 at the Paseo YMCA, not far from the site of the museum. When Muehlbach Field opened in 1923, it was home to the Kansas City Blues in the American Association. Through the years and its different names, the ballpark hosted many games of the Kansas City Monarchs. Ritter wrote that when Muehlbach Field first opened its gates, seating was segregated when the Blues played, but the white and colored signs came down for Monarchs games. Johnny Kling, the former Cubs catcher, owned the Blues for several years in the mid-30s, and he refused to segregate seating in the ballpark regardless of who was playing. However, when the Yankees acquired the club in 1937, segregation was reinstituted for Blues games, a decision that caused considerable bitterness in the black community. The Monarchs are one of the fabled teams of black baseball. Its players included Ernie Banks, Elston Howard, Buck O'Neill, Satchel Paige, and for one season in 1945, Jackie Robinson. The Negro Leagues are mentioned in Ritter's chapters on Comiskey Park, where the East-West All-Star Games were played annually from 1933 to 1950, and Griffith Stadium, where the Homestead Grays played many games, as they did in Forbes Field. In 1995, Ritter's book Leagues Apart was published, featuring beautiful illustrations by Richard Merkin. It's a children's book, that offers a good introduction into the subject of the Negro Leagues. Across Missouri, about 250 miles east of Kansas City, is the site of Sportsman's Park in St. Louis. It's now home of the Herbert Hoover Boys and Girls Club. But from July 1, 1920 to May 8, 1966, it was home to the St. Louis Cardinals. And from April 23, 1902 to September 27, 1953, it was home to the St. Louis Browns. It was home to two Major League Baseball teams longer than any other park. The pinnacle of the park's history probably came during World War II in 1944. With many of baseball's best players in military service, the Cardinals and the Browns both won league pennants and faced each other in the World Series. The Cardinals won the series in six games. 
The single most memorable event in the history of the ballpark may have taken place on August 19, 1951. The vertically challenged Eddie Goodell, usually referred to as a midget, led off the second game of a doubleheader against the Detroit Tigers. It was possibly Bill Veck's most famous stunt. Today, Goodell is referred to as a little person, the smallest ever to play Major League Baseball. How small was he? Three feet, seven inches tall. From Sportsman's Park, our next destination is Cincinnati. You might head east to Indianapolis and then southeast, or east to Louisville and then northeast. Either route will get you to the intersection of Western Avenue and Finley Street in Cincinnati's West End, where Crosley Field was home to the Cincinnati Reds from April 11, 1912 to June 24, 1970. Cincinnati is known for having the first entirely professional baseball team, the 1869 Cincinnati Red Stockings. In 1884, professional baseball began to be played at Finley and Western. In 1912, the wooden ballpark at the site was replaced with the steel and concrete gem, first known as Redland Field. And then when Powell Crosley Jr., manufacturer of radios, refrigerators, and automobiles, bought the Cincinnati Reds, the park became Crosley Field. My dad and I went there in 1971. By then it was shut up so tight that we were unable to get in. It was being used as an overflow impound lot for the Cincinnati Police Department. The park was demolished in 1972 and replaced with an industrial park consisting of several buildings. Crosley Field was about 20 miles southwest of the Cincinnati suburb of Blue Ash. Today, a bare-bones replica of sorts is part of the Blue Ash Sports Center. It includes a replica of the scoreboard as it looked when the final out was made at Crosley Field, June 24, 1970, as well as a ticket booth from the park and other commemorations. When Ritter wrote Lost Ballparks, there was little or nothing in Cincinnati's West End to note that a ballpark had once been there, but that's changed. There are now murals of the park, and a colorful marker with information about the park created with the help of the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame and Museum. We hope you are enjoying this episode of Where Have You Gone? For more information about the show, its topics, and its guests, check out our website at whygpodcast.com. There you can also find recommendations for fascinating books, films, TV shows, and recordings to learn even more about our topics, guests, and ideas. You can also find us on Facebook at Where Have You Gone hyphen podcast and on Twitter at WHYG podcast. And now back to the episode. On my route, we hit the eastern stretch of the trip at Washington, D.C. and work our way up through Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York, Brooklyn, and Boston, then across the border to Montreal. 
I'm going to look at the eight ballparks in the East in the United States more collectively than individually. What do the eight ballparks from Washington, D.C. north to Boston have in common? And what do they not have in common? Hilltop Park in New York did not last to the start of World War I. Memorial Stadium in Baltimore did not open until 1950. It was the last of these parks standing. Six of these parks were affected by the Major League Baseball franchise relocations of 1953 to 1961. Braves Field lost its team when the Boston Braves moved to Milwaukee. Scheib Park lost its original tenant when the Athletics moved from Philadelphia to Kansas City. Ebbets Field and the Polo Grounds lost their clubs, the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants, when those teams moved to California. Griffith Stadium lost its club, the Washington Senators, to Minnesota, but got a new one for one final season, 1961, and a new team, the expansion Washington Senators. The one ballpark that ultimately benefited was Baltimore's Memorial Stadium, where the St. Louis Browns became the Baltimore Orioles. Four of these parks hosted the World Series 10 straight years from 1947 to 1956. Ebbets Field six times, the Polo Grounds twice, Scheib Park and Braves Field once each. Six of these parks, excepting Hilltop Park and Baker Bowl, were sites of the breaking of the color barrier in Major League Baseball from 1947 to 1959. Baseball's great experiment, as Jules Tigell called it, was prominent in Ebbets Field and the Polo Grounds. By the early 1950s, Jackie Robinson and Roy Campanella were playing at Ebbets Field, Willie Mays and Monty Irvin at the Polo Grounds, and Sam Jethro at Braves Field, all among the first wave of the great black players to enter Major League Baseball once Robinson broke the color line. Regarding Griffith Stadium, Ritter wrote in Lost Ballparks, there's no indication of any sort, not even a marker, that it ever existed. Howard University Hospital now occupies the site. That has changed. Today the park is remembered with information and pictures outside the hospital as part of Lift Every Voice, the Georgia Avenue Pleasant Plains Heritage Trail, and Trail 13 of the Washington, D.C. African American Heritage Trail, and inside the hospital as well. The only one of these parks I got into was Baltimore's Memorial Stadium. I saw several games there in the neighborhood about five miles northeast of downtown Baltimore, between East 33rd and East 36th Streets, most notably games 1, 2, 6, and 7, of the 1979 World Series, when the Pittsburgh Pirates beat the Baltimore Orioles four games to three by winning the final three games of the series in what's still the last World Series appearance for the Pirates. Today, the site is now home to a YMCA branch and apartments for senior living, and there's a field on the site where kids can follow in the footsteps of Brooks Robinson, Frank Robinson, Roberto Clemente, Willie Stargell, Jim Palmer, Cal Ripken Jr., and many other stars of baseball and football. 
I got about as close to getting inside Shy Park as I did to Crosley Field. My dad and I were in a deli or tavern in Philadelphia in the early 1970s, and my dad asked about getting from there to Shy Park. The reply was, you don't want to go to Shy Park. And so we didn't. That was, right or wrong, the reputation that the neighborhoods of Cleveland's League Park and Philadelphia's Shy Park and others had in the early 1970s. Years later, Alan and I visited the sites of Scheib Park and Baker Bowl, both marked with plaques from the Philadelphia Historical and Museum Commission, both placed after the publication of Lost Ballparks. On to New York, where Hilltop Park was the first home of the New York Yankees, then known as the Highlanders, from 1903 to 1912. It was in the Washington Heights section of Manhattan, now home to Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center. The site of the park's home plate has been marked since publication of Lost Ballparks. The Yankees moved over to the Polo Grounds at Coogan's Bluff in the North Harlem section of Manhattan and shared the park with the New York Giants from 1913 through 1922. The Yankees moved into Yankee Stadium in 1923. The Giants had played at the site as early as 1891. The polo grounds with its distinctive horseshoe shape, where Bobby Thompson hit the shot heard round the world in 1951, was the fourth ballpark on the site, opened in 1911 after a fire claimed the previous park. After the Giants left for the West Coast, the ballpark got one more reprieve when National League Baseball returned to New York in the form of the New York Mets. The Mets played at the Polo Grounds in 1962 and 1963 before moving into a new home, Shea Stadium, in a new part of town, Flushing Meadows. About Ebbets Field, Ritter wrote, Of all the ballparks that no longer exist, none has been romanticized more than Ebbets Field. It's a stage for the works of fiction and nonfiction. It was home to the Boys of Summer, the Brooklyn Dodgers of Jackie Robinson, and perhaps the most romanticized baseball team ever. I can't imagine saying anything about Ebbets Field that has not been said. Ritter's chapter on Ebbets Field in Lost Ballparks is just one of many starting points you can choose to learn as much as you want about its history. Of all these eastern United States ballparks, more of Braves Field still exists than any of the others. Home to the Boston Braves from 1915 to 1952, it was best known for the jury box, a small section of bleachers separate from the other stands in right field. When the Braves left for Milwaukee, Boston University acquired the property. Most of Braves Field was demolished, but the right field pavilion was incorporated into Nickerson Field. Nickerson Field was the original home of the Boston Patriots of the American Football League. It was also home to Boston University football until the sport was discontinued by the university, and it's still home to BU lacrosse and soccer. It's roughly 315 miles from Nickerson Field in Boston across the United States-Canada border into Quebec and Montreal. 
the site of Montreal Stadium, also known as Delormier Downs, just a few kilometers north of downtown Montreal. It was the home of the Montreal Royals of the International League from 1928 to 1960. The Brooklyn Dodgers bought the franchise in 1939 and made it the team's top farm club. Legends of baseball that came through Montreal to Brooklyn included Ralph Branca, Don Drysdale, Don Newcomb, Duke Snyder, and most notably, Jackie Robinson. It was Robinson's home park in 1946, his first season in the Dodgers organization, and it was home to six pennant winners in the 1940s and 1950s. When the Dodgers moved to Los Angeles, Spokane, Washington became home to the club's top farm club. Delormere Downs was demolished and replaced with a high school and adjoining athletic field. An article at the Montreal Gazette website dated April 15, 2021, written by Danny Gallagher, says there's now a marker on the corner of the old ballpark site honoring Robinson's accomplishments, another marker where the Robinsons lived in Montreal, a mural, and the statue of Robinson outside Olympic Stadium. Olympic Stadium was still the future home of the Montreal Expos when that expansion team joined the National League in 1969. Things were different back then. Montreal didn't have a big league baseball park. No problem. There was a little 3,000-seat baseball park within Jerry Park, a big public park about seven kilometers farther west of downtown Montreal. City officials promised to expand the baseball park and did so to 28,500 seats, and it was the first home of the Montreal Expos. Things were better then. I did have the good fortune to get to Jerry Park with my dad in 1974. What a place. It was a short walk from the metro stop to the park and then through the park with soccer and other family activities taking place outside the baseball park. One of the most notable features of the baseball park was the public swimming pool just beyond the right field fence. Willie Stargell was the first player to blast a home run into the pool. If you have the good fortune to visit Montreal, you can visit Jerry Park and a portion of the baseball park. When the Expos moved into Olympic Stadium in 1977, a portion of the baseball grandstand was incorporated into a reconfigured tennis stadium with one corner of the court where the baseball backstop once was. There are many ways to get from Quebec, Canada back into the United States. One option is to drive southwest into Ontario and take the Peace Bridge into Buffalo, New York. If you do that, you'll be about three miles southwest of the site of Offerman Stadium, where the Buffalo Bisons played in the International League from 1924 to 1960. My father, born in 1920, grew up in Buffalo and his favorite player was Ollie Carnegie. Lost Ballparks has a picture of Carnegie, probably one of the reasons Lost Ballparks is one of my favorite books. Carnegie was a fireplug-shaped player at 5 feet 7 inches tall and 175 pounds. He once worked for the Pennsylvania Railroad before turning to professional baseball. From 1932 to 1941, he hit 254 home runs and drove in over a 1,000 runs. 
Ritter wrote that the two most popular players in the history of the Bisons were Carnegie and Luke Easter. Easter had already been a star of the Cleveland Indians when he came to Buffalo in 1956. According to Ritter, he was Buffalo's first black player since second baseman Frank Grant in 1888. Ritter wrote, He became an immediate folk hero in Buffalo, as he had previously been in Cleveland, due as much to his charismatic personality as to his long-distance batting feats. If you want to know more about Luke Easter, seek out the book Folk Hero Forever, The Eclectic, Enthralling Baseball Life of Luke Easter by Alex Painter. And for more about Carnegie, Easter, and Offerman Stadium, I highly recommend the Seasons of Buffalo Baseball, 1857-2020, to an update and revision of Joseph M. Overfield's The 100 Seasons of Buffalo Baseball. The original book is a classic, and the revision, edited by Joe Overfield's son James H. Overfield, is a worthy successor to the original. The Offerman Stadium site is now home to the Buffalo Academy for Visual and Performing Arts. It's a magnet school, also known as Buffalo Public School 192. In 2012, a plaque honoring the rich history of Offerman Stadium, donated by the Greater Buffalo Sports Hall of Fame, the Buffalo and Erie County Historical Society, and Friends of the Buffalo Sports Museum, was unveiled outside the school. Finally, about 220 miles southwest of Buffalo, there's the site of Forbes Field in Pittsburgh. Once again, I refer you to our previous episode, Where Have You Gone, Forbes Field, for information about the home of the Pittsburgh Pirates from 1909 to 1970. As with all the chapters of Lost Ballparks, Ritter keeps his focus on Forbes Field in his chapter about the Pittsburgh Park. But there's equally hallowed baseball ground nearby. Just a few minutes drive up into Pittsburgh's Hill District on Bedford Avenue, you can find historic markers honoring Josh Gibson and Greenleaf Field. They're part of the rich history of black baseball in Pittsburgh, a history captured in many places including Rob Ruck's groundbreaking documentary Kings on the Hill. Just a bit further west on Bedford Avenue is the August Wilson House. It's the childhood home of August Wilson, whose legendary theatrical writing includes Fences and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. It's still under development, but it looks to be an important addition to America's literary landmarks when the work is done. And with that, and a virtual return to Cleveland where we started, our Ritter's Lost Ballparks trip is done. It's been about 30 years since Lost Ballparks was published. If Ritter was alive today, or if someone else is up to writing a sequel, what ballparks merit inclusion? Exhibition Stadium in Toronto might make the cut. Opened in 1959, it was the original home of the Toronto Blue Jays. It was demolished in 1999. Cleveland Municipal Stadium would seem certain to make the cut. The Cleveland Indians left the stadium after the 1993 season in favor of Jacobs Field, now Progressive Field. 
The Cleveland Browns left town altogether, and the stadium was demolished in 1996 to make room for a new stadium for a new expansion version of the Browns. Ironically, League Park, the ballpark the Indians abandoned for the stadium, has enjoyed a renaissance in recent years. Although the grandstand is long gone, the playing field is back in use for youth baseball, and the Baseball Heritage Museum occupies the ticket house that was once the entrance to the park and home to the offices of the Indians. When the Detroit Tigers left Tiger Stadium after the 1999 season, it seemed the most likely of the classic parks to survive without a Major League Baseball tenant. The Tiger Stadium fan club waged a persistent battle to save the park. Ultimately, it failed, and the park was demolished in 2008 and 2009. Like League Park, the Tiger Stadium site has been reimagined and now contains a youth field surrounded by new housing above street-level retail space. Visit the corner of Michigan and Trumbull, listen closely, and you might hear Ty Tyson calling a Hank Greenberg home run, or the great Ernie Harwell with his longtime broadcasting partner Paul Carey, who was, after all, the voice of God. Milwaukee County Stadium and the original Yankee Stadium are also now among the lost ballparks that Ritter wrote about. There are more minor league parks that deserve mention. Cooper Stadium in Columbus, Ohio, gradually demolished over the past decade. Rosenblatt Stadium in Omaha, Nebraska. Bush Stadium in Indianapolis, Indiana. And LaGrave Field in Fort Worth, Texas. Most, if not all, of the old ballparks had a signature moment. At Cleveland's League Park, it was probably the unassisted triple play by Bill Wamsgans in the fifth game of the 1920 World Series, in the sixth episode of Where Have You Gone? Where Have You Gone? Forbes Field. Greg Brown and I spoke about the singular annual event that takes place every October 13 on the Forbes Field site. On that date, men and women, old and young, gathered to relive the seventh game of the 1960 World Series and the dramatic victory of the Pittsburgh Pirates over the New York Yankees on Bill Mazeroski's home run in the bottom of the ninth inning. Another such event cries out to take place annually at another of the Lost Ballpark sites. The date is October 3, and it's the anniversary of the shot heard round the world. Bobby Thompson's three-run home run in the bottom of the ninth inning to give the New York Giants a come-from-behind 5-4 win and the National League pennant against the arch-rival Brooklyn Dodgers. The recording is available, and the site is accessible, just as with the recording and the site in Pittsburgh. I mentioned that the Beatles played a concert at Municipal Stadium in Kansas City. I did not mention that they also played at Comiskey Park and Metropolitan Stadium, and at Crosley Field where a concert scheduled for August 20, 1966 was rained out, but the group played there the following afternoon and then quickly proceeded to St. Louis for a performance at the new Bush Memorial Stadium that night. I suspect you now have many new or renewed road trip ideas, and that's appropriate, 
because Lawrence Ritter went on the road to conduct his interviews for the glory of their times. In the preface to the book, Ritter wrote that he had traveled over 75,000 miles throughout the United States and Canada. He wrote about the wide range of the interviews in terms of length and location. Decades after The Glory of Their Times was first published, an audio version was published, and now the interviews can be heard as well as read. At the beginning of the 21st century, the Deadball Era Committee of the Society for American Baseball Research, Sabre, established an award to honor the best book of the previous year set in the Deadball Era, 1901 to 1919. It was named the Larry Ritter Award and is presented annually by the committee. Ritter had one request regarding the award, that it not be called the Lawrence S. Ritter Award, as had been proposed, but simply the Larry Ritter Award. And that's the way it is. I'm Morris Eckhouse, host of Where Have You Gone? Our music was composed and performed by Harry Richardson. Our logo was designed by Jeff Santala. The Where Have You Gone podcast is produced by Alan Eckhouse. Where Have You Gone is a production of The Morwin Company. <laughs>